It's been a great week. I sure appreciate all of you coming. I believe that God's been speaking into people's lives, and I believe that it's a, a week that's going to change your life. Hallelujah. You know, I enjoy the meetings where you get so excited and pumped up and fired up as much as anybody. But, you know, this week has just kind of come out different. It's been a lot of soul searching. It's been a lot of instead of, uh, you know, pointing the finger at somebody else, you've been pointing back at yourself and analyzing some things. But that's good for you. Uh, it's, it's good. I believe that you'll grow. I think you'll take things from this meeting that will make a difference and it'll help you to walk in love. And I tell you, it'll make a huge difference in the rest of your life. This morning, I've been, I've been really, I want to say this correctly, I've been trying to avoid ministering what I'm going to minister this morning because those of you that are in the Bible school or who heard me very often hear me preach on this a lot. And I thought there's so many other things I need to talk about the love of God that I've really tried to avoid doing this. But you know what? I, I just have to do this. This, to me, is one of the most important things that God has ever shown me. I feel like that here we are talking about how to walk in love towards other people. And I think I'd be totally irresponsible if I didn't cover this. And those of you who've already heard me minister along these lines... I'm not apologizing because you need to hear it again. And um, so I, I guess I would I have a tendency to apologize, but I shouldn't. Amen. I, this is one of the things that I go over and over and over. And, and so I just think that when we're talking about walking in love with other people, that this is one of the greatest truths. This is one of the major things, one of the most important things God has ever shared with me in my entire life. And so that's the reason you've heard me minister on this before. Some of you have. And so uh, I'm going to share on it again. And if you've already heard this, well, then you know what? I need to hear it again. I don't ever get tired of hearing it. So hopefully you'll be able to receive from this too. Let's turn over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 13. And here is a scripture that just rocked my world, revolutionized my life, and it specifically has application to walking in love with other people. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Boy, this scripture... Just grabbed hold of me. I couldn't tell you, but this has been decades ago. God revealed this to me. And um, it is just a major point in the things that God has shown me. It doesn't say that one of the leading causes or a main cause or for type A personalities, this tends to be true. In other words, this isn't gender related. It's not based on, uh, you know, what society you live in or anything else. This is an absolute truth that doesn't vary from culture to culture, from person to person, from personality to personality. This is just an irrefutable truth that the only thing that causes contention, which Proverbs 17, 14 says contention is the beginning of strife. So you could say the only thing that causes strife, the only thing that causes these divisions among people is pride. Pride is the only cause. It's not the major cause. It's the only cause. There is nothing else that causes the problems between people except pride. Man, that is one strong statement. And did you know that 99% of all people, I would suspect that 90% of all Christians wouldn't agree with this. They just say, that can't be so. It's what this person did. And basically, without verbalizing it, what they're saying is that if people do something that is so bad over here, you're just human. You have no choice. You have to be hurt. You have to be angry. There has to be strife. You know, if a person does this, then I am justified in being hurt. I'm justified in being angry. I'm justified in unforgiveness. You may not verbalize it that way. You may not be that open in your resistance to what the scripture says. We would all say, oh, yes, I believe this. But in practice, this is how most people live. Most people do not believe that pride is what caused the contention. They say it's what that person did. 
that caused the problem. And they believe that, in a sense, we are just uh, like animals. We're just a hunk of chemicals. There is just a physical, natural response when this happens. I have no option. I'm only human. I guess what I'm saying is that, no, we aren't only human. We are born again, and we have the same capacity on the inside of us that Jesus had to turn around and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can love anybody. You can't make everybody else love you because even Jesus was resisted and persecuted. And so it's wrong to think that love will make everybody be at peace with you. But you can love anybody. I don't care what they've done to you. The thing inside of you that makes you angry is not what people do to you, but it's that pride on the inside of you that makes you angry. And most people don't take this approach. Most people think it's these external things that are making me angry. If I could get out of rush hour traffic, if I could get away from the pressures of this job, if I could get away from this husband or wife, or, you know, well, Lawson, I don't even know what he's talking about. He hadn't shared anything with me, but he said he's been through a rough time. I know that pastor in the church, <laughs> praise God, I've been delivered. And... I pastored three churches, and you know what? I loved it when I did it, but I tell you what, what I'm doing is easier than pastoring a church. Pastoring a church is tough because, you know, I can say whatever I want to, and tonight it's over, and you're out of here, and praise God, I can go home. But Lawson, man, it's not that way. He has to live with these people he's talking to. And so anyway, he's had problems and stuff come against him, and I've heard preachers before say the ministry's wonderful if it wasn't for people. And they sit there and it's those people. If I had a different group of people and there's a lot of pastors that leave a church, not because God told them to do it. And again, God can move you on. But there's a lot of pastors that leave church because they have a wake of broken relationships and problems that they help cause and it gets out of control. And so they just leave it and turn it over to somebody else and go make a mess someplace else. That's what a lot of people do. The general approach is we are all trying to change our environment, thinking that if my environment changes, then I'm going to be happy, and then I can walk in love, and then I can have peace, and then I can do all of these kind of things. This verse just kills that logic. It kills it. It is not the external things that has upset you and caused these problems. It is pride. It's the only thing that causes contention, which Proverbs 17, 14 says is the beginning of strife. If you've got strife in your life, if there's division, if there's hurt, if there's pain, if there's all of these things, it's your pride that's the problem, not what other people are doing to you. Now, what other people do may be an opportunity, an inroad for the devil, an opening like a door or a window into your life. I'm not saying it's not a part of the... Uh, problem. It's a, it may be a, um, you know, a portion of what's going on, but ultimately, now here's a great statement that, boy, I've been using this. It's changed my life is that nobody, the devil, nobody else can do anything to you without your consent and cooperation. How you feel is 100% your choice. Here's Lawson's testimony that he's gone through some rough stuff and yet he's happier, so happy. He's sitting there Praising God, crying, thinking about how good God is in the midst of problems. I guarantee you, some of the times that I've felt the love and the peace of God so much, I've been overwhelmed as when it seems like the world is falling in around about you. It's totally separate from circumstances. If the only way that you're able to walk in love and have joy and peace and victory in your life is during those brief moments when all of the planets align just perfectly and everything is at total peace and everybody's loving and everything's going good, if that's what you are looking for to have joy and peace and walk in love, then you are going to be one frustrated, angry, bitter person. Because we live in a corrupted world where I guarantee you Satan has more than enough people that he can parade across your path to push your hot buttons. I mean, you are going to always, always, always have some problem. And if you don't have a problem in your life at this moment, it's right around the corner. It's on the horizon. You keep breathing and you are going to have a problem. You know, you could have had a wonderful week here and you could just be thinking, oh, this is wonderful. And you're around people that are talking about the Lord and you've met people and it's been a great time of fellowship. And some of you, it's just been a wonderful time. 
But you know what? You're going to leave this place. And I guarantee you, uh, when you get home, your dog will bite you. Amen. <laughs> something will happen. There is going to be something happen. And if you are looking for joy and peace and contentment and love and external things, you are never going to be consistently happy and full of joy and flowing in the love of God because we live in a fallen world that is not good. If you haven't realized it, life is a terminal experience. Every one of us is in some stage of death right now. We're on our way to a tombstone. I know some of you don't like that, but it's absolutely true. And if you just sat down and got to thinking about nothing but the physical, natural things, there's a lot of things that could take away your joy and could make you bitter and keep you from walking in the love of God. And so, if you are trying to solve all of these external things, it's like, man, spitting in the ocean. It is just, you know, it's not going to make much difference. Amen. You are not going to change your entire world around you. But you know what you can do? You can change yourself. Even though some people take offense when I start saying that the problem isn't the external things. It's not what people do to you that's the problem. It's what's on the inside of you that makes you angry and makes you respond the way that you do. When I say that, some people get angry. But if you understand it properly, this is actually a wonderful truth because you are the only one that you have control over. You can't even control your mate. Some people think you can, and they're trying to, and that's the reason their marriage is in a mess is because they're trying to change their mate. It's not your business to control your mate and to make them something. You are the only person on the face of the earth that you have absolute 100% control over. And if you understand this properly, if it's not what's being done to me that's the problem, but it's what's on the inside of me that responds to what's done that's the problem, this is actually a wonderful truth because now, praise God, I can change me. I can't change you. I can't change the world. I can't change everything else, but I can change me. If I'm the problem, thank you, Jesus, for showing me I'm the problem because that means I can change. So this is really good news, even though some people take this as bad news. You know, I was ministering on this in Pueblo one time, and I had a little Mexican guy come up to me, and he came up and he says, I understand what you're saying about this. I got it. I got all of these truths. But he says, I just don't relate. Because you say that pride is what makes us have contention and strife and all of these things. And he says... I got a multitude of problems, but he says, if anything, instead of having pride, he says, I got this low self-esteem. I think I am the sorriest person. He says, I just don't have any self-confidence. And he says, I have this low self-esteem. And he says, I am one of the most bitter, angry people that you'll ever meet. And he says, I just don't understand. He says, pride isn't my problem. And you know what? I had to explain to him that most people think that pride is just arrogance, thinking that you're better than everybody else. That's only one manifestation of pride. You know, it's like if you had a stick up here. A stick has two ends on it, and they're at opposite ends. One end of a stick is arrogance over here. That, Yeah, that's pride. But you know what the other extreme of it is? Did you know that timidness, shyness, low self-esteem is super pride? I believe it's actually a more deadly form of pride because it's subtle and most people don't recognize it for what it is. I believe that pride at its root, the core of pride, of course, if you just took the word, it's I. It's self-centeredness. It's self-focus. And it doesn't matter if self thinks you're better than everybody else and so you look down your nose at everybody thinking you're better than them. That's arrogance. That's pride. But you know, over here thinking, oh, I'm the scum of the earth and nothing ever works for me and I'm just, you know, shyness. Timidness is extreme pride, self-centeredness. And I can say that with conviction because I was an introvert and I was so shy and timid that I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. You know, I just went back for my 40th year class reunion this uh, June the 2nd. And uh, it was interesting to see all of these people and stuff. But you know what? People are just shocked at what I'm doing because this, I mean, what I'm doing, it was impossible for me to do. For me to stand in front of a group of people 
It couldn't have happened. It was impossible. This is not me. And I was a super shy person. I couldn't talk to people and stuff. And I can tell you what I was thinking. Now that I have this understanding, you know, when people came up and talked to me and the, and the reason I just kind of freeze and I couldn't even say my name, I couldn't respond to people. I had a guy walk down the street when I was a senior in high school and he said, good morning. And he was two blocks down the street before I got good morning out. I couldn't even say good morning to just a stranger passing by. And, you know, I know exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, you know, I was, I had such low self-esteem. I was thinking, God, you know, what if I say something wrong? What if I make a mistake? What if I say something foolish? It was just all about me. Timid people. They might sit there and think, you know, that I'm not a proud person. You are a super proud person. It's all about you. You are only thinking about yourself. You're so afraid. Are you going to say something and do something wrong? You're always thinking about yourself. I'm not saying this to hurt you or condemn you. I'm saying it to help you. You can't uh, change this situation until you rightly diagnose it. If you are a timid, shy person, it's because you are an absolutely self-centered, self-focused person. That usually goes over about like that. You know, there's some of you in here that have been born again. So you got a testimony that could change people's lives. Many of you have been healed. Your marriage has been saved. Great things have happened. And you know what? If you could, you could change somebody's life. You've got a revelation of God that could literally cause a person to pass from death unto life. And yet, if I was to call on you and ask you to come up here, would you share what Jesus has done in your life? You've got some things that could change people's lives, and yet you couldn't get up, you couldn't stand up here and get it out. You know why? Because it would all be about you. You'd be thinking, what's everybody going to think about me? I haven't prepared. Oh, let me go study so that I'll look good. And you're worried about all of these things. And you would literally sit there and not not share, not project what God has put in your heart because of your self-centeredness. When I first started ministering, you know, I was still working through this thing and I would get up and minister and it would be so bad every time. I mean, some of you may think it's still bad, but it's a lot better than it used to be, amen. I mean, it used to be really bad, amen. And when I get up and minister, it was so bad that I'd swear, God, I'll never embarrass you or me again. I'll never do this again. And for two years, two years, I stood up and ministered. I started a Bible study and ministered one time a week, every week for two years. And it was so terrible that I swore I'll never do this again. And I'd have to repent and go do it again because I just had a call of God. It was like fire shut up in my bones. But man, I struggled. It was, it was pitiful. And anyway, I got up and I was ministering one time and struggling, trying to get out these truths and trying to share with people the things that God had shown me. And I had a guy walk up afterwards and he said, you know, you got some good things to share. And if you ever got to where you loved the people more than you loved yourself, you could be a blessing. And you know what? As right after I pulled that dagger out of my heart, <laughs> he was right. And it was just like a light clicked on. That you know what the deal was? I was thinking, is everybody going to, uh, you know, like right now, here I'm stuttering for words. What if I stutter? What if I make a mistake? What's everybody going to think about me? And I actually got to a place where I just don't care. I love you. I want to share with people. I know these truths have transformed my life. And so now I'll get up and stutter and stammer around and do things. And, you know, but eventually God used an old donkey one time. And it wasn't because it had taken elocution lessons and because it had a seminary degree. You know, I'm just convinced that eventually I'm going to stumble around and say enough things that, praise God, these truths are going to get out. And when I get more concerned about ministering to you than I am what you think about me, you know what? I'm over that and I'm able to communicate. And so what I'm saying is that self-centeredness is what pride is. And it doesn't matter if you are arrogant thinking you're better or if you are one of these timid, shy, low self-esteem people. You are a super selfish person if you have low self-esteem because you are just constantly thinking about yourself. 
Let me give you an example of this over in, um, let's see, where is this? Numbers chapter 12, I believe. Numbers chapter 12, it says in verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. Ethiopians were black. Moses, of course, was a Jew. So this was an interracial marriage. And so people had criticized him for this. And here's his own brother and sister coming against him because he had an interracial marriage. And so therefore, they were criticizing him. And in verse 2 it says, They said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And the story goes on to say that God struck Miriam with leprosy. And Moses had to intercede for her. And the Lord says, Well, if her father had just spit in her face, according to these Levitical laws, she would have been unclean for seven days. says, Let her stay outside of the camp for seven days, and then she can come in and I'll heal her. And so he interceded for her and she was healed. So you know what? People have asked me, what do you think about interracial marriages? Well, you know what? I don't think that they're sin. I don't think that they're wrong. This right here is a pretty good indication of what God thinks about it. Amen? <laughs> Speak against it, you liable to get struck with leprosy. <laughs> Not under our covenant. We got a better covenant. But you know what? This shows you... Uh, what I think about it. I think that there's problems and you need to consider it. But you know what? If, you, if that's what you feel God's led you to do, go for it. Amen. So anyway, it says in parentheses right here in verse 3, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were on the face of the earth. You know, at this time, we know that there was at least 3 million Jews because they, that's how many came out of the land of Egypt. And they were the minority in Egypt, so that means that there was more than 3 million Egyptians. Plus, there was all the ites that dwelt in the promised land, the Canaanites, Perizzites, and all, all these other ites. And so, there was millions of people. There must have been 15, 20 million people at least on the face of the earth. And Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And here's my point for bringing this out. Guess who wrote this? Moses is the one that wrote. He was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now see, some people, according to the way things are today, people look at humility as, humility is just beating yourself down and saying, oh, I'm nothing and oh, I can't sing. You know, but God said, make a joyful noise. Would you all just pray for me while I get up here and try and sing? And then they sing, and you can tell that they've had operatic training and all of this stuff. You know what? They, most people would say, well, that's humility. No, that's just a religious kind where you put yourself down so that you hope people will come up and say, oh, you shouldn't say that. That was wonderful. You really did a good job. It's you fishing for a compliment, what it is. It's insecurity. And to prove that that wasn't genuine when that person said it, you can go up to them during the grocery store and, you know, during the week and say, you know what, you were right. I think you do have the worst voice I've ever heard in my life. That was pitiful. And see if they go, yes, brother, that's what I was telling you. <laughs> They'll take offense. They didn't believe it. We've been taught that putting yourself down is humility. No, it's not. Humility is not having an opinion about yourself. And if God says you are the meekest man on the face of the earth, would you be humble enough to say, that's me? You know, right here in this auditorium, there's got to be somebody who's more meek than any other person in here. And if I had everybody bow their heads and close their eyes and we're going to pray and let's just ask God to speak and reveal to us who is the meekest person in here. And if God said it was you, would you be humble enough to stand up and say, it's me. I'm the meekest person in this room. If you're thinking, what would people think about me? Then you aren't humble. That's self-centered. Self-centeredness isn't always just exalting yourself. Self-centeredness can be when you're debasing yourself because you know that people will accept that. And that's religious accepted religiously accepted, but you are, you're afraid to say the truth. You know what? There, you just need to have no opinion. If the Lord says, you, you are a jerk, you need to repent. You say, Father, I'll receive that. But if He says, you know what? You're the righteousness of God and you can do these things. Father, I'll do that because I believe Your Word. That's a humble person. 
Humility is just having God's opinion, not self-centered. You aren't self-promoting. And yet most of us are totally self-promoting. And here's one of the points I want to try and get across through this, is that, you know what, when you look at things from your perspective, if you are self-centered, it's like looking through a glass that's been painted red or something. If you look through a glass that's been painted red, everything you see is going to be tinted red. If you look through something that's been you know, tinted blue, it'll all be blue. When you look at life through self-centeredness, it just taints your opinion of everything. You don't have a proper evaluation. God did not create us to be self-centered the way that our existence is. Our world has just embraced selfishness. It's all about self, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can and just protect. It's just all about self. That's what everybody's existence is about. Self-preservation is number one to most people. And yet that's not the way that God made us to be. Adam and Eve were so God-conscious that when they ate of the fruit, do you know what happened? They realized for the first time that they were naked. They were just as naked before they ate of the fruit as they were after they ate of the fruit. Some people say, oh, they were clothed in the righteousness of God, the robes of righteousness. Well, you can use that as a spiritual metaphor but you know what? They were butt naked before they got before they sinned, and they were still naked after they sinned. They didn't have one stitch more clothes on before they sinned. The the difference was their focus. They were focused on God and on the spiritual realm to such a degree that they didn't even realize they were naked. That's how God conscious they were. That's the way that God created us to be. And then when we became self-conscious and began to start recognizing our own nakedness and it all began to start being about us and looking at ourselves, that's when sin entered the world. And that's, where, that's what we were born into. And most of us don't realize how far we've fallen from what God intended us to be. But when you look at life through a self-centered focus and you are the center of the universe, you are the plumb line for everything, and you have no absolutes in your life except you are the absolute focus. I guarantee you, you are a problem waiting to happen. It just can't happen. And yet the Scripture tells us to do just the opposite of this. It says over in Philippians, let me turn over and read this so that I I can't quote it exactly, I don't think, but in Philippians chapter 2, The Apostle Paul said in verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. If you'll remember, Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride comes contention, which Proverbs 17.14 says, Contention is the beginning of strife. So, let nothing be done through strife. What is the root of all strife? Pride. He's speaking against pride. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others, other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In verse 3, he says, don't get into strife. If you take Proverbs 13.10, the reason we get into strife is because of pride, self-centeredness. So what's the antidote to that? Don't look on just your own things. Look on the things of others. Esteem others better than yourself. Think more about the welfare of somebody else than you are yourself. These things fit together perfectly. It's the exact same thing. If you want to stop strife, then you have to look at things through the eyes of the other person and not just through your selfish perspective of what's been done to you and what it is that you want. And when you change the way that you look at things, you know that right there will diffuse. I mean the vast majority of all strife. To me, this is one of the most important things is anytime somebody rubs me the wrong way, instead of me just thinking about what they've done to me and what it's costing me, I go to thinking about them. Father, where are they coming from? Why is this person doing what they're doing? What are they thinking? And I'll start trying to look through the eyes of the other person. 
Now, that doesn't always work because sometimes the other person is just absolutely wrong. But in many cases, I would say most of the strife that goes on, it's not malicious in the sense that somebody is just out to hurt you. It's just carnal people rubbing each other the wrong way and things happening. And you can solve all of that kind of stuff. You know, I've used this example before, but I remember many years ago uh, watching a thing on television, and it was about capital punishment. And they had a man who had raped a girl and then murdered this girl in an attempt to cover up his rape and cover his own tracks. And so he was in prison, and he was facing execution. And they had him on death row, and they were doing this documentary on him. And they started playing this sad, morbid music that got to your emotions. The screen went from color to black and white and showed the drabness of his cell. It showed him in his cell. And I mean, it's this little tiny cell with a toilet over in one corner and stuff. And it's just, it was sad to look at this. And they showed him sitting there with his hands, you know, propping up his head. He was bent over and just sad and depressed. And then they go down the... Uh, corridor and show you where the electric chair was and they started talking about this and then to make it worse they went back and got his baby pictures and they showed pictures of this guy when he was a baby and you know what regardless of what a person does when you see their baby pictures and here's this innocent little baby and you think that someday society is going to kill this person because of something that's a little hard to reconcile it's hard to think that someday this child is going to grow up and that you're going to kill it And then they showed this guy playing on a little stick horse and he had a cowboy hat on. He was playing cowboys and Indians and they showed his pictures. They showed that he was sexually abused when he was about four or five years old. He was in reformatories. He had a terrible life. He was mistreated. All of these things happened and then they brought you up to where he killed this woman, raped this woman and killed her. And you know what? After seeing his background, and seeing the things that had happened to him, even though I believe in capital punishment, I'm not excited about it, it's not something I like, but the scripture prescribes it in Genesis chapter 9, and I believe that it's still in effect. I think it's a deterrent. And so I believe that capital punishment is a good thing to do. And even though I believe in capital punishment, after seeing this guy's side of the story, did you know I came up to that and my emotions were just in a place to where, God, there's got to be some other way. Seems like we could handle this some other way than killing the person. And it was persuasive, and I was beginning to start changing my opinion. And then, as I was watching this, I thought, but God, what, what about your word? Your word says that if you know a man kills, then his blood has to be shed in atonement for that. And I was thinking about this, and all of a sudden the Lord spoke to him, and he says, what would happen if you turned this around and if you showed the girl's baby pictures, the girl that was raped and murdered, and if you showed her baby pictures and showed her growing up and playing with dolls and her dreams, and let's suppose that she was a Christian and she had these goals and things, and then some pervert comes into her life and for self-gratification rapes her and then isn't even man enough to face the consequences of his own actions, and he murders her trying to cover that up. If you were to show the same group of people that are watching this program the girls' side of the story, they would have turned into a vigilante committee and they'd have wanted to go string him up from the nearest tree, even people that didn't believe in capital punishment. And through that, it was just a graphic illustration to me that it determines 100% what your reaction is as to which side of the things you are looking on. If all you do is think about, well, what, look what they said about me. And if you are so self-centered that you're thinking on your hurt and your pain and the things that have bothered you, then strife is the inevitable only byproduct of self-centeredness. But if you could look at things from the other person's standpoint and see where they're coming from, if you would do what it says over here in Philippians Chapter 3, esteem others better than yourself. Don't only think on yourself, but think on other people's things. If we could do that, did you know that it would just take the bite out of all of these kind of things? And I guarantee you, to me, this is the number one thing that allows me to walk in love towards other people. 
is to just not be so self-centered. I used that example last night of a corpse. If you've really died to yourself, if self isn't the dominant controlling force in your life, then you can spit on a corpse, kick a corpse, ignore a corpse, insult a corpse, and if it's a corpse, it won't respond. If you're responding to all of the things that happen to you, it's an indication that you haven't died to yourself. I know that's not real exciting, but that's absolutely true. This needs to be balanced a little bit because, you know what, this doesn't mean that so you just let people walk all over you and do things. You know what, I could take this as an employer and say, well, if I'm really dead to myself, then you know what, you do whatever. Just show up whenever you want to. It doesn't matter if you show up on time. It doesn't matter if you do a good job. It doesn't matter whatever. You know, I'm just dead to myself. But you know what, that wouldn't be loving you. That's not good for you. That's not good for our partners that give money to this ministry and affect us and, and expect us to run an efficient business and do things like that. Man, we would have to, instead of 140 employees, we'd have to have 280 employees to do what we were doing if we just allowed people to work at their own pace. I guarantee you, there is a place for sitting there and saying, you know what, we love you. And I'm not mad at them, but you know what, you need to go somewhere else. This isn't good. Your behavior is not helping you. It's not helping us. And you need to recognize that there isn't a free ride. And we fire people. And it's not because we have anything personal against them. It's because we got policies. And we found out that these are how the ministry works. This is what we have to do to make things work. And if you can't abide by those policies, you need to go somewhere else. You need to do something else. That's not contrary to what I'm saying. You've got to do certain things. You've got to correct your kids. If you love your kids, you can't just sit there and say, oh, I love you so much, I'd never spank you. I'd never do anything to hurt you. If you don't spank them and hurt them that little bit and teach them right and wrong, then you're going to allow them to go out there and be destroyed by the devil and by life because you didn't give them the equipment that they needed. Man, it's love. Just like I'm sure many of you heard this and you hated it, but it was true that this spanking hurts me more than it hurts you. It's absolutely true. Sometimes out of love, you got to spank people. Out of love, you got to do things. But I'm saying your motivation should never be out of anger, out of getting even. There are things that you have to do. We deal in a world. And you know what? Some people don't, some people cannot make this connection. They think that what I'm about to say just undoes everything that I've been saying. But if you can receive it, I think it'll give a proper balance to it. You know, I've often thought to myself, and you don't know for sure what's going to happen until you're in that situation, but here's what I would prefer to do. Here's what I believe I would do if somebody tried to rob me. You know, I held a meeting over in England, and Dave Duell came over, and, and a girl came up to him with a knife in the subway at night on the way to the meeting, and he gave her everything he had, all of his money, his watch, everything. They just stripped him, basically, of everything, and he got robbed over in London of everything he had. I've thought about that often. That, you know, I've had people want to kill me and criticize me. They've, they've said I'm like Jim Jones. I have never said a word against that person. I hadn't criticized them. I've let it go. I've ministered with them on the same pulpit and talked about how God has blessed them and anointed them. And I've never spoken a word critical of them, even though they have said that I am a cult and had people burn my materials. I've never criticized them. You know why? Because that is being persecuted for the gospel's sake. But if you want to steal my money, that's not the gospel's sake. You know, Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But my kingdom is in the heart of man. There is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. I believe that there's a place. If I was president of the United States, man, I'd have my army. I guarantee you, I would have probably been much more aggressive than what President Bush is. I guarantee you, there is a place. The Bible says in Romans chapter 13, don't think that these governments carry the sword in vain. There's a place to use the sword. And so I've thought that if somebody was to come up and want to steal my money, if they want to come up and kill me for my witness for the Lord, you know what, I'd submit myself even to being a martyr. But if they want to steal my 20 bucks, 
I'd probably, it'd, it'd probably be as much bluff as anything else, but I'd tell them, you know what, I was drafted and I learned how to kill a man with my bare hands in two seconds. And I said, I may not be able to get all three of you, but which one of you wants to die first? If you're going to get my 20 bucks, I guarantee you, I'd fight a person to the death. And some people are like, well, how dare, I thought you were operating in love. That is love. That's love. You know what? Those planes that were hijacked on September the 11th, three of them reached their designated targets because for decades, decades, the way we've been told to respond to terrorists is don't aggravate them, do whatever they say. And the people allowed people with a little tiny box cutter to hijack a plane. You know what? They didn't have the physical power to do that. They did that because good people wouldn't put their self on the line and risk injury to themselves. They would rather risk all of these other things. But at that fourth jetliner, when they found out what the fate was going to be and they knew where it was going, did you know what? They overpowered those people and they crashed that plane into a Pennsylvania field and spared the nation's capital because of their heroism And I guarantee you, if every person in here would get to the place that, you know what, you love people and you're forgiving and stuff, but if somebody is going to go and steal and rob for you, if you would defend yourself, you know what, it would put a huge damper on crime. It is a statistical fact that you take the states that allow people to carry guns and the, the, um, what do you call it? Yeah, concealed carry. Thing that those states have less uh, crime than the states that allow it. Because crooks go where it's an easy target. You aren't helping society. You aren't helping anybody else. You might be thinking, but it could cost me my life. But you know what? I guarantee you that crook would never do that again if every person responded that way. And I think that that is a selfless action. I'm going to do what's right if it cost me my life. If a crook came up and tried to steal from me, I guarantee you I would not just lay down and enable them to walk off with my money. I would fight ungodliness to the death. And I'd do it in love. Man, right as I had that guy in the stranglehold, I'd be saying, Jesus loves you, repent before I let you have it, amen. You're about to meet your maker. I don't see any contradiction. Some of you may. And it's amazing. People have become so passive today that they're even passive towards the devil. The same God that said, turn the other cheek, said, hate evil, abhor that which is evil. There's a place for hate. So there is a balance between all of this. But I'm saying the motive is, are you doing it out of selfishness? Or you do it because you lost your temper that somebody, how dare them do something? Or are you doing it because, man, you hate that ungodliness and you are not going to allow ungodliness to continue. So you're going to fire an employee or you're going to have to rebuke this person or deal with your children or do whatever it takes, but you're doing it because you love them and it's the right thing to do. And even if it's a harsh thing, even if you have to execute judgment on somebody, if you can truthfully say, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And because it's standing for godliness, then you know what? That's love. Amen. Amen. But if you would look at things from the other person's point of view, it would just totally change things. You know, some of my very, one of the very first employees that I had was a woman who had two children by a previous marriage. Her husband had died and she and inherited three corporations and she wasn't a businesswoman and she had these two small children, three corporations and she was a basket case. She wasn't born again and she, uh, was, she was just at the end of herself and she walked into a daylight donut shop in Lamar, Colorado and a man walked up to her that says, I'm God and told her her name and says, if you'll worship me, I'll solve all of your problems. And so this woman worshipped him. She followed him. Thought, man, this, is, this has got to be God. And she married this guy. 
And it was a terrible marriage. And he threatened to kill the children from the two previous marriage. If he ever saw them, he'd kill them. And so they had a house with a basement and the kids had to stay in the basement. But the kitchen was up top. And the night that I met them, the kids had snuck into the kitchen trying to get some food. And this man tried to kill those two children. And the police had them all separated out on the lawn. And so some people called me over. And I went over and started talking to them. And they said... And she had just gotten born the week, born again the week before that. And so she was a brand new Christian. And so we went over to some people's house and they said, tell this woman she doesn't have to live with that man anymore. And so I said, you don't have to live with that man anymore. I just repeated it just like that. And it was obvious that my heart wasn't in it. And she looked at me and she says, what are you saying? And I said, you don't have to live with him. The Bible says if he's pleased to dwell with you. I said, apparently he's not pleased to dwell with you. He had broken her neck once before. He had poured hot grease over her, tried to kill her. And I said, the guy's not pleased to dwell with you and you're free to leave. And she said, but... I said, it's just the devil in him that makes him act the way that he does. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And I said, if you would draw on what Jesus has put on the inside of you, there's a possibility that you could turn this thing around and that you could change him. And she said, you really think that there's hope? I said, man, you know, love never fails. I said, there, yes, there's hope. And so she decided to stay with this guy. And the people that brought her over, brought me over to talk to her, got really upset at me because they did not want them to stay married. But anyway, she came to work for me. And so every day at work, I'd just coach her. And I was telling her primarily these things about it's only by pride that contention comes. And she started... Loving this guy. And one of the things that she did was start thinking about why does he treat me the way... Why does he do these things? And she went back and he was uh, a man from... Uh, I forgot what it was. It was... Anyways, one of those Caribbean islands where he was dedicated to the devil at birth and there was an animal sacrifice and he was dedicated to Satan at birth. And he was demon-possessed from childhood. And he was brought up in all of this voodoo and stuff. And anyway, when she got to seeing that, she saw why he was acting the way that he acted. And because of this, she actually got so much compassion for this guy that, you know, there, I had to refrain myself from telling her, you're overboard. Don't you realize this guy really is a first-class jerk? I mean, I didn't like the guy. <laughs> But she got to where she actually loved this guy. And they went to a marriage counselor who was a friend of mine, a guy that I know, and he was filled with the Spirit and should have known better. But they got in there, and first of all, this marriage counselor asked the guy, what's your side of the story? And so he just lied. He accused her of everything he had done. He said, she has broken my neck. She's poured hot grease over me. She's tried to kill these children. And he lied about her that she leaves her body and barks at the moon and howls at the moon and, and demons come through and choke him. All of those things happened to her. He was telling all of the things on her as if it was uh, you know, her doing it to him. And it was all a lie. And this marriage counselor friend of mine got so mad that he stood up and hit the desk and he says, you don't have to live with somebody like that. Divorce this woman. And his wife calmed him down. Now, wait a minute. Let's listen to the other side of the story. So he calmed down and he asked the woman, he says, all right, so what's your side of the story? Let me just ask you before I tell you what she said. Let me ask you, what would have been going on if you were the mate? First of all, I bet you that there's not one out of a hundred people in here that would have let your mate say those things uncontested without you jumping in and straightening it all out and start arguing. She never said a word. And then when it came her time and they asked her what the problem was, you know what she said? She said, I used to think that he was my problem and I was mad at him. But the Lord showed me that it wasn't what he's doing that made me mad. It was what's on the inside of me. It's my own pride. And she says, man, God's working on me and I am changing as quickly as I can. She never defended herself. And you know what? The marriage counselor said, divorce her. It's over. And so they walked out of that marriage counseling thing. They got in the car and he looked at her and he says, why didn't you defend yourself? Why didn't you say anything? 
And she said, Jesus has already set me free. And she said, I love you and it's not about me. God has met my need. I went there to help you. And if running me down is going to help you, she says, it's fine with me. You know what happened? This guy lost his power to call up spirits and bark at the moon and leave his body and stuff. And within just a few weeks, he says, your power is greater than mine. And he moved out. So she got her kids out of the basement. They started just enjoying being a family again. And within six months, this man was born again. And then they had marriage problems because he wanted to go to Raymond. She didn't want to be a preacher's wife. What a great example of love. You know, real quickly, I've just got to say this. I'm a couple of minutes over, but let me say this. That, you know, some people say, well, I can see this. That this, you know, when you're selfish, it just skews your view. You don't see things properly. And it always causes contention and strife. But why is it that we're all so selfish? You were born selfish. When you were born, you didn't care that your mother had been up all night long giving birth and through pain and now she needed sleep. You wake her up right in the middle of the night, in the middle of the morning. You want to be fed? You know, you could bring a little baby into this auditorium and they don't care if there's hundreds of people that want to hear the word. They'll sit there and act like they're the center of the universe. Nobody else matters. They'll make noise. They'll cry. They'll ruin it for everybody else. They don't know that there's another person on the earth except them. They are 100% self-centered. Every one of us came into this life 100% self-centered. You're supposed to grow out of that. You're supposed to learn that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's in losing your life that you find your life. Parents are supposed to teach us that. And yet most of our parents are self-centered. And so when you're in a supermarket and you want candy and the parent says, no, you can't have candy. All you got to do is just fall down on the floor and throw a fit and scream and yell and cry. And you know what most parents will do? Because they are self-centered thinking, what's everybody thinking about me? Man, I've got a little brat. Rather than do what's right, you'll reward the kid and give them what they want. Because you're self-centered. And what you just taught that kid is self can get it. If self is willing to make a big enough scene, self can get whatever it wants. And so instead of learning to get out of self-centeredness, we actually increase self-centeredness. And the problem is that we are 20, 30, 40, 50, 60-year-old adult brats still thinking that you are the center of the universe and your mate did something that rubbed you the wrong way, and instead of understanding that probably they did that because of the abuse that you've given them or the neglect, instead of seeing what's happening from their standpoint, all you can think about is, look what happened to me, and so now you throw an adult temper tantrum. You don't fall on the floor anymore. You just give them the cold shoulder and make their life miserable until you feel that they've suffered equal to what you've suffered, and then you'll forgive them. Am I right or wrong? So you know what? You came into this world self-centered and you're going to have to make a decision to change and to put God first in your life. And you're the only one that can do this. I said this last night, but you know, you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humility is something you choose and do. If it's done to you, it's humiliation, not humility. Only you can humble yourself, and it's a choice. And this is really what changed my life that March the 23rd, 1968, when God showed me my self-righteousness You know what? I humbled myself and I said, God, I'm sorry. And I got off of the throne in my life and I put God on the throne. And it's not a one-time experience. I've had to deal with self. I have to deal with self all of the time. I've had people after a message like this come up and say, would you please cast self out on me? (laughs) The only way I can do it is to kill you. And then yourself will be gone and it will be perfected and you'll be okay then. But short of killing you, I can't cast self out of you. You just have to deny it. Die to it daily. 
That's the reason the Bible calls it in Romans chapter 12 a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. Amen. You got to keep it up there. It's got to be a daily living sacrifice to where you put others and God ahead of yourself. And it's a choice. And one last thing, and, and we'll quit with this, but I talked to uh, Jim Irwin, the astronaut who walked on the moon, and I was in Vietnam when that happened, and I missed all of that stuff. And so I've always had a desire to hear stories about that. And when I got a chance to be on television with Jim Irwin, I was talking to him, and I gave him my books, and he, he gave me his books, and we shared him. And I was asking him these questions like, how do you go to the bathroom in space and stuff like that? And, I got a really interesting answer, but I won't share that with you. <laughs> but anyway, I was asking him all these questions, and he, he shared with me that they blasted off and threw that capsule towards the moon. And for four days, or however long it was that they went to the moon, every ten minutes they had a course correction. And he said sometimes the course correction was a fraction of one degree. Other times they were 90 degrees off target. And they would have to have a 10-minute burn to get back on target. So actually, instead of that thing going to the moon perfectly the way that I had it envisioned, they just threw it in that direction, blasted off, and then they had a course correction every 10 minutes. That thing went to the moon like that. And then they had a 500-mile long landing strip that they were trying to land in. And when he got out of the lunar module, he was within five feet of being outside of this 500-mile landing strip. They nearly missed a 500-mile long landing strip. But, you know, they made it. And as he was telling me these things, I was thinking, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. Some people think, all right, so I'm going to deal with self, and I'm going to deny it, and I'll never have this problem again. That's not the way that it is at all. You just blast off. You make the decision and you head in that direction. And then there's going to be a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. And you never arrive, you just leave. And you keep going in this direction. And if you don't understand this, some of you this morning might be motivated to say, all right, I'm going to put Jesus in my life. I'm not going to be selfish. And you may be sincere, but then when you fail in that and you all of a sudden realize, oops, I'm selfish again, you'll think, oh, no, it didn't work. No, it worked. You blasted off. You just need a course correction. Amen. You know, you may have a course correction before you get out of the parking lot. <laughs> Somebody wants to pull out and are you going to sit there and say, how dare them? Man, there's been two cars go already. I'm getting in here. And instead of inserting yourself... You say, you know what, I'd think, I'll think I'll let you go instead of myself. You'll have an opportunity to act on this before you get out of the parking lot. You may go over here and want a tape set and the last one gets bought and you have an opportunity to say, you know what, I'd, I'll just bless you with it. I'd rather you have this than me. You'll have a course correction opportunity every 10 minutes for the rest of your life, but that doesn't mean you didn't blast off. But you know, there is a beginning place, and I'm convinced that there's some of you this morning who this is the first time that the Holy Spirit has really enlightened you and shown you this, and you haven't blasted off. There's many of you that didn't even know you're supposed to blast off. There's some of you that thought that living selfish and, well, think, well i got a self-preservation, i got to take care of me. You thought that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, there's somebody here today that need to make a decision that at least I'm going to start in that direction and you have to choose. You have to make this decision. So let me just ask, if you're, everybody in here could probably get a course correction this morning. Nobody has arrived. Nobody is perfect. I bet you every person in here to some degree has been spoken about selfishness. But some of you have already made this decision and you've blasted off, I'm not wanting you to respond. But I'm asking people who will be humble enough to admit that you haven't even blasted off. You are a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 year old adult brat who is still putting self ahead of everything else and you need to repent and you need to humble yourself. And somebody says, oh, you aren't going to make a stand, are you? What will everybody think? That's the reason I'm wanting you to do this in front of everybody else is because you've got to humble yourself. You've got to start exalting and preferring other people ahead of yourself and quit being self-centered. You know, if you would say that I haven't done this and I need to receive it, I want you to just stand right where you are and I'm going to pray for you. So all of you that are leaving, I'm going to take it that... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
If you haven't done this, I want you to stand and we're going to pray and just make this commitment and yield ourselves to God. Father, we just agree right now. And these people have humbled themselves. You said confess our faults one to another. We've done that. And Father, we humble ourselves. And right now, we just commit ourselves that, Father, we want you to rule our life. We want to love you and to love other people more than we love ourselves. Father, we don't want to be self-centered, self-focused. And so we've stood, we make this commitment, we lay ourselves on the altar, make ourselves a living sacrifice. But Father, we don't have the ability to consume the sacrifice. We just offer ourselves and we ask for the fire of the Holy Spirit to fall right this moment and consume these lives. Father, to light a fire on the inside of us that is going to consume all of this self-centeredness and burn it up and get us to where we walk in love towards other people because we prefer them ahead of ourselves. Father, we just thank you for that. We make this commitment and we believe that you are faithful and just to keep that which we commit today. And we thank you for it. We agree and receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 That's awesome. Thank you, Jesus.